Under very strict laboratory conditions, the distinction between bactericidal and bacteriostatic antibiotics seems clear-cut and straightforward. In a clinical situation, however, these lines are pretty blurry. More recently, the idea that sidal is better than static, as a general rule, has been considered a myth. And since it's been absolutely ages since we've busted any myths on microbe mail, what better thing to do today than idiot-proof the myth of sidal being better than static? Speaking of idiots, James, Callum, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks very much, Ben. Well done for working idiots into the introduction. <laughs> yeah, that was that was smooth. It's almost like you're sensible and plan what you're going to say rather than just making it up on the spot like we often do. I'm not as good as you with making it up on the spot. So I to spend I, I'm not sure it. good at making it up on the spot is how I would describe what we do. <laughs> I agree. Good is doing a lot of heavy lifting in these uh, sentences here. Uh, how are you doing, Ben? Yeah, good, good. Dark. It's a winter solstice. So, yeah, that's a heads up, heads up for, for the listeners of, of when we actually recorded this episode. Um, but otherwise, well. Will you tell us about the Idiots podcast and a little bit about yourselves for those listeners who didn't catch our previous episode together? Callum, you take this. Thanks, Finn. So, yeah, um, we're from the Idiots podcast, and that stands for Infectious Diseases Insights of Two Specialists, uh, although sometimes the two uh, switches to, to free or tetrad or any other number beginning with uh, T. Yeah. Um, so there's a set number of people that can be on. And uh, what are we? So we're a, a podcast looking at sort of infection for the perspective of, of clinicians or laboratory workers or anybody who's interested. Uh, we're based in the UK. And our sort of reason for starting was to provide content for people sitting their sort of membership exams mm -hmm. uh, for, for infection medicine. And uh, we've been going for almost two years now. Yeah. Mm, that's right. And long may it continue. Long may it continue. Absolutely. Just a couple of reminders. Remember to sign up for updates on the Microbe Mail website. You can follow Microbe Mail and the Idiots podcast on social media. Rate both shows on your pod player of choice. Remember to share with colleagues, friends, and students. And have I missed anything else, Jay, Callum? I don't think so. We, we are, we're not organized enough to have a newsletter. Um, <laughs> Uh, so no, we've got nothing to point people towards except the podcast itself. Give, give us a go. Of, of the two podcasts out there, Micromail and the Idiots podcast are probably the two most similar. So yes. if you enjoy Micromail, you probably enjoy Idiots and vice versa. Absolutely. Um, so give us a try. You know, it's not like there's a limit on the number you can subscribe to. Yeah. Give us a try and give us a rating. Okay, great. So I think we're ready to get into this episode. So, James, I think first question would be, what do each of these terms mean? What is bactericidal and bacteriostatic? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Vin, you already know this. So let me explain this to Callum. Callum. <laughs> Imagine a perfect day complaint, Callum, on which you have a colony of uh, bugs and you have an antibiotic and you want to know what the antibiotic is doing. Uh, to that uh, colony. So you maybe set up a bunch of plates and you've got, you know for a fact that you've got 1,000 colony forming units or, or bacterial cells, however you want to think about it, on that plate. And then you add a certain amount of antibiotic and you come back and you check that plate at 24 hours. 
If you had exactly 1,000 bugs on that plate, then you would have uh, determined what the MIC is. So the minimum inhibitory concentration, or MIC, is the concentration that inhibits visible growth at 24 hours. So, you know, visible, but I'm just using this bugs analogy for, you'll, you'll see why in a sec. And there is a, another concentration, which is above the MIC, which we sometimes also refer to, which is the minimum bactericidal concentration. And that is the concentration which generates a three log 10 reduction of bacterial density, again, at 24 hours. So you've got your 1,000 bugs on the agar plate and you come back and you have one or less than one bug on that plate. You think to yourselves, aha, I have determined the MBC minimum bactericidal concentration. For reasons that we probably don't need to get into unless you feel like getting into them, then it's kind of difficult to... Uh, look for the MBC all the time in the lab. So for, for for technical reasons, we usually go to the MIC. And when you have uh, antibiotic susceptibility testing, either machines or you're putting antibiotic discs on a plate, the MIC is what you're you're kind of looking for. And we've mapped zones of inhibition and, and things like that to the to the MICs. Uh, and so, what's the definition of bactericidal and bactericidal? Well, simple. If you're MBC divided by your MIC is less than four, mm -hmm. then it's bactericidal. And if it's greater than four, then it's bacteriostatic. So Callum, once again, I'm going to make this very simple for you. I'm going to uh, uh, tell you about a bug-drug combination, and the MIC for this bug-drug combination is one. Okay? So if the MBC is five, then that would be a bacteriostatic antibiotic. And if the MBC was 3.99999, then it would be determined to be bactericidal. Do you get it? Yeah, so you take the MBC, you divide it by the MIC, and if that's less than four, then it's bactericidal. Yep. Yes. So it has to be less than four times, as in they've got to be closer to each other. So yeah. it's, once you get above the MIC, you only need to get a little bit higher, and then you hit the MBC then that would be your bacteriocidal antibiotic and bacteriostatic. So, you know, that's simple. Those are the definitions. And uh, uh, do you have any questions, Cal? Yeah, I guess for me, like I always think of cidal as it kills, inverted commas, and stat as, yeah. as it sort of inhibits growth, but it's not killing the organism. But I guess we'll get on to whether that actually matters or not. And, and why the magic number four? Well, that... that is a very interesting question because there are loads of holes that we can poke in this. So let's start at the very, very beginning. Why 24 hours? The bugs don't know that it's 24 hours mm -hmm. and they don't work, but they kind of, no, I'll say that they don't work to a diurnal rhythm, same as they don't work to the number of days in the week for how many uh, doses of antibiotic will kill them. Yep. So the 24 hours thing is a little bit odd. For the MIC, why are we looking at visible growth? You know, mm -hmm. visible growth on the plate, according to a human eye, that's full of potential errors, not only to do with the human's eyesight, but to do with how the bug is actually growing on the plate. When it comes to the MBC, why is it a thousand-fold reduction? So if I yeah. if I get to, uh, you know, if I have 1,000 bugs and I apply a certain concentration and I come back the following day and I have two cells on the plate instead of one cell, I have not achieved the MBC, but I've killed almost everything on the, on the, on the plate. plate. Is that not good enough? Like why... 
why is it a thousandfold? It's because we like working in base 10. But if we didn't use our thumbs like the Mayans did, we'd be working in base 8 and we would be you know, wanting a 512-fold uh, reduction or right. a 1,024-fold reduction. And as for the ratio, which I guess is what you asked me originally. <laughs> yeah. I just love just sitting here like James is just going off. He's, he's <laughs> taking off, he's apart. flying. You can see go. this topic excites James. <laughs> James be unleashed. You don't know why four. Why isn't it five? Why isn't it ten? Why isn't it two? Do you know why isn't it just two times over the MIC? Like I d- the, These numbers seem to have been picked completely at random. Random. And then the ultimate kicker is even if you get that, we talk about bug drug combinations for, you know, targeting uh, antibiotics and the bugs don't play by the rules. So the the antibiotic in question could be static against something, but sidle against another. So see macrolides, for example, are bacteria sidle against streptococci, like would be strep and strep pneumonia, the kind of things that you would even want it to be active against, but they're bacteria static against almost everything else. Yeah. Linezolid, our favorite bacteria static antibiotic of the all famously bacteriostatic is bactericidal against streptococci mm-hmm. but not enterococci the closest relative to streptococci or staphylococci the thing that you're usually using it against in serious infections and chloramphenicol is also bacteriostatic or purports to be bacteriostatic but is bacteriostatic which is why it was a good choice for pneumonia in the first place mm-hmm. So the bug drug combinations don't work. And even if you do get a bactericidal antibiotic that is working against, you know, that particular uh, bug, you know, so let's, let's say beta-lactams and, uh, and staph aureus, mm-hmm. they might not be bactericidal dependent on where they are and what they're doing. So if they're in the exponential growth phase, then they're trying to create more cell wall and, beta-lactans interfere with that, so you will get a kill. But if they're in the stationary phase, then the bacterial kill is going to be much less. And if they're, you know, this is, um, we're getting onto the, the kind of role that protected sites uh, play. But, you know, if they're, if they're in biofilm, then the, the whole issue is that they tend not to be doing a lot of growing exactly. uh, there. So as well as having difficulty penetrating into the biofilm, the, once the beta-lactam gets there, it doesn't have any PBP activity to neutralize. And so they're not going to be uh, killing the bugs, even though it's a bactericidal antibiotic, even though it's a bactericidal bug drug uh, combination. Mm-hmm. So microbiologically, there's so many holes to poke in this that I'm surprised it got any traction in the first place. <laughs> wow. But got traction it did. And <laughs> you know what? The, um, I don't. I've not read into the like old papers that like you go back to like the 60s or 50s and you know the heyday of microbiology or, or even earlier. Do we know like what what was the where did this come from? Do you do you know, Vin? I I don't really know what the sort of who, who first wrote about this. But James on a roll, so I think he probably knows. <laughs> no, I, I I looked into this. I, okay. I tried my hardest to figure out where all these different parameters came from, and it's a bit like breakpoints from the days of yore. Mm-hmm. They just somebody just tried it and it worked, and so it just got made into into current practice and then you know today's current practice is tomorrow's dogma regardless of the evidence uh base behind it and so then we've we've sort of ended up in this situation where i'll tell you why i'm so angry i i told you this before the podcast started but for the for the loyal uh loyal listeners from the idiots podcast and the uh and the um uh, and the micro male mob uh (laughs) or whatever your whatever your collective name for your fan base is (laughs) 
Um, I spent ages on this when I was a medical student and an early years uh, junior doctor. I had pretty little mind maps with with everything color coded, and I had a had a big green box for if it was a bactericidal antibiotic and was therefore trustworthy, and then a, a little red box if it was a bacteriostatic uh, antibiotic and therefore presumably not worth. Uh, the prescription uh, that it was written on. And that's mm-hmm. how I thought about them. I thought about them as a bunch of good antibiotics that worked and a bunch of bad antibiotics that didn't. Yeah. And it was just built on this paper tower of lies. And I wasted so much time and did so much what I now think of as kind of bad antibiotic uh, stewardship. Yeah. So like the, the uh, you know, I'm working to some notes here and these notes are a case-based discussion that I did like, just like four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. And the thing that I did was I I, I recommend um, uh, Keflex in a step down for a uh, uh, a UTI or, or doxycycline, which is, mm-hmm. is normally bacteriostatic, and was told in no uncertain terms that these were completely wrong. And the reason for them being wrong was because they were, they were bacteriostatic. And I now know that to be complete crap. Sure. But that that's the, the world that I grew up in. Yeah. And, you know, until relatively recently, I was I was practicing that way, and I just think that this is an example of the kind of things that happen when you accept dogma um, unquestioningly. Is that you you kind of end up making decisions which are kind of bad for the patient, which is why I'm kind of so fanatical about people not practicing that way um, these days. All you need to do to get James to go off on one is uh, is to tell him that he's wrong. <laughs> So anyway, yes. what was question two? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we're not there yet. But yeah, I think that's the problem with teaching medical students things in black and white boxes is that it's oversimplified. And in fact, you end up creating medical practitioners who prescribe inappropriately just because yeah. it's been oversimplified. But it, not because they're... You know, not because they've done something wrong and they didn't no. do any proper learning. It's because you yeah. told them. Yeah, yeah I've I've had to. I've I've got another job where I'm a clinical lead, clinical pharmacology lead for a, a medical school, and mm-hmm. I part of that I have to like review questions that pertain to clinical pharmacology, and because they mm-hmm. know I'm infectious disease too, I was asked to review a bunch of the infectious disease like teaching materials, mm-hmm. and static versus cidal was in there. Okay, and was was stated in pretty plain terms that static antibiotics are kind of crap, and the bacteria side, oh, wow. that's the real good stuff. That's the stuff that you really want to give to the patients. And I ripped it out, and yeah. that that was written not very long ago, like three or four years ago, tops. Yeah. And there was stuff on penicillin allergy there that was that was from yesteryear. There was everything that you could think of, you know, give IVs. Um, uh, you know, because they're they the best, the golden hour, all, yeah. all these things, which there's more and more evidence for, for there not being very, you know, um, either not much evidence of benefit or no benefit at, all. at all. And if you misimply it, it's, there's, you know, potential for, uh, for harm. I don't know how you feel about this, Vinam. I kind of feel that infectious disease is just coming into its evidence-based medicine era. Yeah, absolutely. It's lagging behind many other specialties and it's, it's only just waking up, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's good that it's happening now, but like I, um, the the pace of change is quite slow. It's very slow. Yeah, it's quite frustrating. Yeah. 
Okay, and then before we head into the myths, it's probably a good idea for us to talk about which groups are traditionally grouped as sidle and which are traditionally grouped as static. Callum, do you want to take that? Because otherwise I'm just mouthing off. <laughs> so as James said earlier on, I, I guess it's worth, uh, it, we, we as we just said, um, things aren't always black and white mm -hmm. and... Um, the same goes for bacteriocidal versus bacteriostatic. So I think the classes that we would commonly think of being bacteriocidal would include your beta-lactams, you know, penicillin-type antibiotics, classically, mm -hmm. uh, your aminoglycosides, um, although we've recovered aminoglycoside episodes, they've got sort of multiple mechanisms of effect. Uh, glycopeptides like FANC, there are things like rifampicin, uh, streptogramins, so pristinomycin, quinolones like Cipro, and uh, lipopeptides like daptomycin. And then things that would be commonly thought of as bacteriostatic in most circumstances would be things like sulfonamides, tetracyclines, chloramphenicol, um, macrolides like um, azithromycin, or oxazolidinones like linezolid. I think that's the main yeah. classes in my yeah. head. And I, I think it's interesting to think back to, you know, at the beginning of when we were using antibiotics and we had, you know, penicillin or sulfonamides. And I think that sort of static sidle debate came in there. And it was perhaps, you know, sulfonamides were discovered before penicillin and were used slightly and then kind of fell out of favour. And, uh, you know... Well, penicillin was discovered first, I think, technically, but sulfonamides okay. were used properly first in Khmer. Penicillin was really only used in anger once the Americans had figured out how to, to mass produce yeah. it, but um, they figured out how to mass produce sulfonamides first. And then sulfonamides sort of fell out of use because everyone was like, oh, beta-lactams are best lactams, mm -hmm. which I think is true, but, you know, part of the, the issue there might be to do with the, you know, perceived sidle static yeah, yeah. And, and yet cotrimoxyl, you know, trimethoprim and sulfamethoxyl are both bacteriostatic in their effect. But mm. because they're double hitting the same pathway, cotrimoxazole, the drug, is profoundly bactericidal. Yeah. So it also sort of depends on what your drug components are. Now, the, the only double drug that we, we use these days is that that's that's hitting the same pathway is is cotrimoxazole. So the other stuff like like comoxglav and piperacintazobactam. Yeah. The beta-lactamase never was protecting the the beta-lactam, but has no functional uh, effect on the bug itself, with one notable exception of of sulbactam uh, with ampicillin. All of this is covered in the basis of beta-lactamase inhibitors, one of our recent podcast episodes, which I'll give you a link to. Been done. Thank you very much. Um, but you know, basically, <laughs> the the uh, double hit drugs. It's really just cotrimoxazole that that remains, and sulfamethoxazole is the only currently used sulfa. Sulfonamide mm -hmm. antibiotic. I think that's a pretty good introduction to the topic. So, are you ready to bust a couple of myths? I'd love to. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm ready. So, first one is bacteriostatic agents slow or inhibit the growth of bacteria, but do not kill them. We've kind of touched on that already. So, that one we can keep sort of brief. Yeah. Cal, do you want to take this or will I just pile on? Um, I guess I would just say that it's not true. But I'm not sure I can just say that, can I? <laughs> <laughs> and I? And I guess the other question is, does it matter? You know, I guess all this stuff is in vitro data. Mm -hmm. And what really matters is the in vivo, the, you know, clinical data. Yeah. And when you look I at suspect that may be the next question uh, oh. that we're <laughs> about to be asked. Um, 
so yeah like the but as an in vitro phenomenon yes if if you hit the mbc and don't go a single micromolar uh, per per liter over it um, then you will you will inhibit but you will you will not kill but the the reality is that when we are thinking about antibiotics and and dosing you're getting over your your goal is not to hit the mic and then go no further mm-hmm. it's it's to get over the mic and as a reminder for the uh, for the listeners you've got time dependent killing which is mm-hmm. things like beta lactams and um, macrolides and then you've got concentration dependent killing that's that's um uh, things like aminoglycosides, gentamicin, Vindana's favorite antibiotic, and mine too. And then uh, uh, stuff like daptomycin. And then you've got stuff that's like a, a sort of a mix between the two. And there yeah. we, we talk about AUC, uh, as in the proportion of the AUC that's that's over over the MIC on a time concentration curve. But I, that's determined by the peak that you get up to and the half-life of the, of the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about those parameters, then, then you kind of get, can get an idea of, of how to dose the drug. And the dosing's all been sort of determined. And UCAST and, and CLSI sort of set the breakpoint with one eye on the on the PK of these antimicrobials. Mm. So when you're, you know, looking at a sensitive or resistant organism, mm-hmm. regardless of whether the antibiotic is static or cidal, you're going to be getting over the MIC. You're go- so you're going to be getting more than just inhibition. You're going to be getting some uh, kill. Yeah. And as long as you have an intact immune system, you'll probably, you know, uh, whether or not you're using bacteriostatic or bactericidal antibiotic, probably doesn't make a lot of difference. Yeah. So that brings us then to myth number two, which is bactericidal antibiotics always actively kill bacteria, which I suppose is... Kind of what you've just been saying anyway. Yeah. Well, well I mean, they, they will always try to kill, but they may be stopped because, say, the organism has a, you know, something, a resistance mechanism, which means that they've got a higher MIC than normal. And then it will be, say, you've, say you've got um, something that has time-dependent killing and you've mm-hmm. got, instead of an MIC of one, you have an MIC of two. That might inhibit the, if, if your target, PK targets that you're, time over make is like 60%. So say for Pseudomonas, mm-hmm. usually you have a higher time over um, uh, time over MIC. If, if your MIC is two instead of one, you, you might not be able to hit that. You might be able to get yep. 40 or 50%. And then you might still be able to cure uh, the infection, but you might not. Yeah. You are still using bactericidal antibiotic, but it may not be effective. You may have to go and use a different bactericidal antibiotic right. or, you know, sorry, you may have to use a different antibiotic altogether in order to be able to hit that. And that might not be dependent on whether it's static or cidal. It might depend on the PK of that antibiotic and whether or not you can achieve it at the target tissue. Right. But the cidality or staticity of it is kind of almost is almost unimportant. Yeah. Here's an example from the last episode we recorded, you and me, Callum. You know, doxycycline is not normally considered to be a anti-pseudomonal antibiotic and, and with mm-hmm. good reason. So the wild type pseudomonas has an MIC of about 150. Mm. Um, but you can't achieve that in, in plasma, not without killing the patient. Um, so doxycycline 200 milligrams will give you a, a peak concentration of about four, but it's about 60% excreted in the urine, which means that you will get a urine peak concentration of about 300. 
Right. And doxycycline has a half-life of 16 hours. So you only hit 150 if you hit that peak of 300. Mm-hmm. You'll only hit that, that uh, 150. So you only start going below the MIC 16 hours or two-thirds of the day um, after you, you dose. So there have been reports of pseudomonas UTIs being uh, cured with, with doxycycline. Now, that's difficult to roll out, you know, immediately because yeah. UCAS and CLSI don't set breakpoints. No, so exactly. it's, it's really difficult to um to to use that information. But as a sort of a Hail Mary, because yeah. as a reminder, you know, um Pseudomonas only has one oral agent and it's the quinolones exactly. um that can be used. So once they are out and the you exactly. know quinolone resistance and pseudomonas is very common in, in the UK and probably in South Africa too. Yeah. You you're then stuck Admitting the patient, or if you've got an OPAT that can give them an anti-pseudomonal antibiotic, you can yeah. uh, try that. But, you know, maybe um, you can use doxycycline as a uh, as a bridge, you know, even though it's a bactericidal antibiotic and even though it's not normally considered to be anti-pseudomonal. Yeah, so I think we need more work on pseudomonas, especially because they aren't oral options. And as you say, we need to be moving away from admitting patients, exposing them to hospital pathogens, having to have a line in um, and looking at these. Definitely worth it. Yeah. Hospitals are dangerous places and expensive if you don't have, um, you know, thinking about the US, if you you, uh, are in a commercial healthcare space, not a state-run healthcare space, then all that cost can really mount up. It's, It's a massive cost. So myth number three is that the evidence we have for CIDL agents being superior is based on high quality evidence. Callum, you better say something because otherwise I'm just going to talk all. Um... <laughs> yeah, so essentially, no. So I think this is something that's been dogma. And because it's been dogma, it hasn't been challenged. And more recently, there's been trials that look at the, you know, whether the bactericidal or bacteriostatic is superior. Um, and essentially, when they've looked at it from different indications, so there's a really great review article by Brad Spellberg, mm-hmm. the... Uh, the very famous uh, writer and author of the, short, the website Shorter is Better. Yes. Um, they've essentially found no difference. And in fact, some some circumstances, the supposedly static agent is superior. So, you know, it's quite difficult to... I think it just highlights that, you know, there wasn't... But like a lot of dogma, it wasn't like someone thought, oh, here's really good evidence to support this. Yeah. And then we're coming along with evidence and challenging that. It's there wasn't really evidence to say it was better. It was all theory, is my understanding. And then we've come up with, you know, quite good, strong, you know, blinded studies to say actually there's no difference. And yet still, you know, these studies like so looking back, a lot of the studies were published in like 2005. So looking at um, you know, like for example, take a cyclone versus vancomycin for skin soft tissue infection of digocycline being your sort of static and vancomycin being your supposed sidle. Yeah. And there's no significant difference. Um, or if you look at lenezolid versus vancomycin in that same setting, then, you know, lenezolid actually came out superior in some of the yeah. trials. Yeah. Um, but it's still really hard to walk it back. And, you know, it, I think James and I have talked about this before, where we say, you know, people, it's like, sort of like confirmation bias, isn't it? You're looking for stuff that supports your pre-head belief. Yeah. There isn't anything to support sidle being better than static. That's true. And there is stuff to say it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's very true. 
So we'll make sure that we put the link for the Brad Spellberg systematic review in the show notes. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to go through the different clinical syndromes um, and what evidence we have for the various syndromes. Okay, so myth number four, Seidel is superior for pneumonia. Yeah, so in 2018, uh, there, be, there may have been more evidence published since, but essentially there was 19 trials that they found that compared bacteriostatic to sidal agents. They looked at, um, so lonezolid was, uh, you know, in terms of the which uh, static drugs they looked at for pneumonia. So they looked at lonezolid, ticocycline, um, zithromycin, so macrolide, mm-hmm. doxycycline, chloramphenicol and clindamycin were some of the trials that were done. Uh, and the comparison agents was a mix of things. Um, and I think this is, a, this is a key bit actually in my head is that it, it, I think it's more important like which drug versus which drug rather than sidal versus static. Yeah. Like we could have simplifying it quite a lot to say sidal versus static as a big picture, yeah. especially now that we know that um, sidal um, and static does, doesn't really matter. Mm. So, you know, I think there's going to be some static agents, which um, like lenezolid, for example, which has a you know really effective activity. And we can see that in the clinical trials. Um, and it also depends on, um, you know, what's going to get into the, some static drugs that you might not use for the way around. So there's some sidal agents that you might not use for pneumonia. So like daptomycin, for example, we know it just doesn't work. Yeah. So... You know, just saying like we need to use a static or a sidal drug doesn't doesn't work. Is, yeah, it's oversimplified. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what about sidal being superior for skin and soft tissue infections? Yeah, I think that's the one for me that is the most uh, compelling, like this, this yeah. most straightforward one. Yeah. Um, because because uh, you know pneumonia is a bit complicated in my head because there's quite a range of organisms that can cause it, and yeah. it's a community acquired, hospital acquired. There's a lot large range of things that are studied. I think skin soft tissue is a bit more straightforward because essentially you're looking at it's probably going to be a staphylococcus aureus or a strep, beta hemolytic strep. Mm-hmm. And then your agent is going to be, you know, ideally some sort of beta lactam or a glycopeptide or, you know, linezolid or something else. And it's sort of a bit more narrow in its focus. And again, yeah. they found no difference. So when they looked at like ticocycline versus vancomycin, there was no difference. When they looked at linezolid versus vancomycin, there was no difference or Lonezolid was slightly superior. You do things like Doxy versus Cotrim, no difference. Lonezolid versus Vank, again, no difference. Uh, what I find interesting there is that like the, the studies that they've collected are all looking at non-beta-lactam antibiotics. Yeah. Um, and I think if we also look at beta-lactam versus non-beta-lactam antibiotics, you're usually finding that the beta-lactam antibiotic is superior. That's true. So, which is interesting because you'd be like, well, you know, that might lead you to think of beta-lactams are sidal and they're yeah. better. If you compare them to vancomycin, that's sidal as well and yeah. it's worse. So again, you know, it's not about whether it's static or sidal. It's the specific antibiotic for the specific bug and that specific patient. Or the specific group potentially. Yeah, yeah. And then what about intra-abdominal infections? Sidal, is sidal better for intra-abdominal infections? Yeah, so again, a couple of studies in this area, mainly looking at uh, ticocycline um, versus, we looked at ticocycline versus imipenems or carbapenem and didn't find any significant difference in a couple of studies. Uh, ticocycline versus keftraxin and metronidazole, which are pretty commonly used. 
yeah. um, a combo, no significant difference. And um, arafacycline, which is another sort of um, tetracycline type antibiotic against ertapenem and no significant difference. Again, it's like, you know, it's not obviously comparing it to, I think, what I would certainly use as standard uh, care for an intra-abdominal yeah. infection. Um, but I still think it puts slight pay to the argument that it needs to be sidal. And also, I guess on a side note, a lot of these studies are static versus sidal looking at tegacycline. And I think, um, you know, there's clearly some issues initially with how that was dosed in clinical trials, meaning that it, people have got this, re- maybe that's a whole st- uh, myth in itself is that tegacycline isn't effective for severe infection. You know, maybe that's something that we need to, <laughs> to deep dive into more. Yeah. Yeah, and it's based on those initial dosing studies, as you say. Um, Should we look at specific pathogens, such as Salmonella typhi? I think typhoid fever has been studied quite a bit in the space of sidal and static. Mm. So is a sidal agent superior for Salmonella typhi? Um, I don't think it would be any surprise by now that, no, it's not any any better. So... You know, looking at typhoid, the, the commonly used drugs, I guess, are cephalosporins, macrolides, yeah. um, and chloramphenicol is something that is used particularly when there's quite resistant, quite a lot mm-hmm. of resistance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and essentially, a couple of studies, so looking at macrolides as a formycin versus uh, as a sort of uh, a static agent in this this context, which is interesting again because the other one we said that macrolides were bacteriocidal. Yeah. In the context of typhoid, they're bacteriostatic. Correct. But, you know, it's just, it gets more and more complicated, doesn't it? it essentially, is. comparing that against various cephalosporins or quinolone, there was no difference. Comparing chloramphenicol, uh, so bacteriostatic, against um, keftraxone or quinolones, again, no significant difference. So, in the studies that we have, the, there wasn't any difference and even you can try and pick holes in that in terms of like well well, that wasn't the right agent to use but yeah you know we're not talking about specific agents we're talking about general static versus sidal myth exactly and i suppose if you look at it from an antimicrobial stewardship perspective you'd want to avoid a quinolone for a single pathogen because it's quite broad spectrum and is associated with quite a lot of collateral damage so if you could go with something like azithromycin with a narrow spectrum of um activity you know that's that's a win yeah definitely and i guess like barrier to resist you know and cipro resistance is pretty high in typhoid in a lot of parts of the world yeah, as well so, exactly yeah you know it's that sort of um stewardship from that perspective as well yeah. yeah so we've got two more clinical syndromes to trudge through is cytal is cytal superior for endocarditis that's a big one um, I think, obviously, you know, we're getting more and more evidence now about oral therapy and infective endocarditis and moving mm-hmm. away from the, the need to have, you know, a solely beta-lactam therapy. And, mm-hmm. it's, for example, in the POET trial, quite a few of the oral agents that are used are things like lonezolid, so bacteriostatic. Yeah. Um, and in their paper, they mentioned, and we were talking about this earlier on, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed this, they mentioned that, and then they think that the potential route for the whole bacteriostatic versus cidal debate um, may have come from an older case series in the 50s in Finland where they were treating patients with bacterial endocarditis. And that study in, in the 50s found that bacteriostatic agents, including things like tetracyclines and uh, macrolides, which in the setting were bacteriostatic, um, resulted with poorer outcomes. Um, 
And that potentially led to the belief that these bacteriostatic agents were generally inferior for infective endocarditis. And so that has led to this fear. And there's some theory behind that, that, you know, okay, well, maybe the heart valves are the sort of area where there's immune suppression because mm. there's not as much access to immune cells. Therefore, the immune system won't do the killing. Therefore, it's more important to have bacteriocidals. Um, but I think, you know, as we talked about there, like the whole cut off between bacteriocidal and static you know kill or not kill it's just not you know it's just arbitrary just made up so you know bacteriostatic antibiotics do kill bacteria um and that probably the reason why that trial found a difference was that things like tetracyclines and macrolides don't stick in your blood so they they diffuse into tissue very well and so the pharmacokinetics of them is potentially why they were inferior rather than any sort of static sidal debate. And if you look at things like linezolid, which is bacteriostatic, mm-hmm. when it's used for bacterial endocarditis, it has good outcomes. So, um, yeah. And actually, probably linezolid is better than vancomycin, which is, a, um, yeah. uh, you know, something. And it, it, actually, whilst we're on this, it kind of amazes me that we still use vancomycin as our sort of first line, you know, go to ground yes. positive cover in patients that are penicillin allergic. Like, yes. I want to be like jumping up and down, like, hello, Lanezolid, you know, it's quite safe. Side effects, Rogoclone, it's probably superior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I fully agree with you. And and probably from the 1950s, I doubt the dosing was adequate as well. Hmm. You know, in those initial couple of decades, it was very low doses of, of the antimicrobials in general that were given. So I'm sure it comes back to that as well. As you said, you know, the PKPD. And then our last infection that we'll touch on is whether sidle is superior for osteomyelitis. So, yeah, again, here, I think the answer is no. Um, this isn't, again, included in, in the sort of paper that we're looking at um, as one of the things in the supplementary table. Um, but if you look at different um, sort of static agents, um, so I'm thinking of things like tetracyclines, like doxycycline, um, linezolid, um, Tramoxazole, yeah. Yeah. So these are very commonly used drugs that we use for osteomyelitis. And mm-hmm. in things like the Aviva trial, where they looked at oral agents based on sensitivity patterns, yeah. there was no, you know, they were just, just as good as uh, in sometimes the sidal agents that were used on the other side. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that this is, again, something that we can myth bust and say it doesn't matter. Like, you need to make sure that you're ideally getting sampling and you know, putting the drug against the bug that's sensitive and it's going to get their inadequate dosing and all the same, you know, pharmacokinetic considerations, but you don't need it to be sidle. Absolutely. And then we're on the home run, Helen, because we're on the last myth to bust. So sidle and static is the most important aspect or parameter which will determine clinical outcome in a patient. And I think if you've been listening at all through the discussion here, I think maybe we can all say this together, those that are listening mm-hmm. at home and us now. And I think that it's like most, like most least important, in fact, of no yeah. importance. Of no importance. I, I don't actually understand why we still talk about it. Yeah. Obviously, we're doing a podcast episode on it because people still talk about it. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. It's, it's, yeah, it shouldn't even be a discussion. There's so many other more important parameters around that. And I suppose that's the point with infections is that there's no single aspect and there's no single parameter which is ultimate or most important and that it's a combination of 
patient-related, pathogen-related, and antimicrobial-related factors combined. Yeah. Do you, I, I guess, can I throw a pro question back? Yeah. And, you know, rather than saying, you know, is bacteriostatic you know, versicidal is the most important consideration, hmm. I guess my, the question that comes into my head, and maybe there is, but I don't think there is, is there any circumstance, any infection, any bacteria, you know, any clinical entity where we care about something being bacteriostatic or cidal? Is that ever important? Sure, that's a really good question, actually. I wonder, I, you think maybe a prosthetic joint infection, potentially? I, I mean, I think the question is, do we have enough evidence for every single um, invasive infection? yet or mm. is the door still <laughs> yeah. open on it and that's that's the other question is it like when when something is so established as dogma you're you're almost like oh well you know you only studied it in this specific indication you didn't yeah. study it in my patient population didn't study it in my exactly. country you didn't study this drug yeah. and you have to walk it back and say like yeah but the thing that you've based the dogma on initially wasn't was good just yeah. you know it was like all the wrong reasons yeah so why are you still holding on to it that's true um, that's true at all um but you know changing people's minds is difficult and we, we are quite skeptical i think yeah. in science with good reason james do you think is there any is there any reason for for someone to to try and remember this at all or listen or even care which class of antibiotic static versus cidal? well i think i think well there is there's one sort of circumstance in which I think people are twitchy mm -hmm. about not using bactericidal antibiotics. And that's when, and it's possibly based on an, on a sort of supra dogma above the, the dogma of cidal versus static, uh, which is if you don't have a functioning immune system. Mm. So if you, if you don't have white blood cells that are doing all the killing, yeah. then, and, and it, it's a, a sort of a bit of a toss up. And I did try and find this data and I couldn't really find it other than some, sort of mouse models yeah. of, of E. coli pneumonia, um, where they they made one, you know, one mouse neutrophilic and another mouse neutrophilic and tried to sort of estimate how much kill was the responsibility of the immune system and how much the antibiotic. Yeah. And, you know, how much that would extrapolate to humans. Yeah. I, I have no idea. But the the sort of conclusion was that the immune system plays a pretty important uh, role. And I, I forget the actual numbers. What if you'd move it? So the patient's undergoing chemotherapy or they've had their, you know, immune system depleted in, in some other manner. If you've, you know, so much of the bacterial response, the initial uh, early response is pathogen associated molecular pattern or PAMP uh, recognition on, you know, your neutrophils and your monocytes and macrophages, your, you know, the um, cannon fodder immune cells and the terminator uh, immune cells that's how i think of them in my head yeah. if you if you take them out of the equation and everything else is coming on later on once the infection is more established is the benefit of bactericidal antibiotics better than mm -hmm. than bacteriostatic and until recently i would have said that the jury's out but there is there has been a recent publication of uh, use of bacteriostatic antibiotics in neutropenic uh, sepsis and I can't remember the exact agents used. Callum, do you remember it? I will look it up and and we can drop it in the show notes, Finn. Um, but as, essentially proving non-inferiority, not superiority or anything, but non-inferiority. Just non-inferiority. Yeah. Okay. In, in that case. And 
I, I think one of the agents was um, Linnaeus, and whether or not that's just a Linnaeus defect because it's such a good antibiotic yeah. for gram positives um, or not, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that this, even that last sort of pillar of, um, of sidality being important may be in the process of being uh, knocked down. It's not knocked down so much that I wouldn't want to use a beta lactam in yeah. uh, all of my neutropenic sepsis patients. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, people are looking into it sort of as, as we speak. Okay. All right, great. So we're coming to the end of this episode and it's time for our spotlight feature. You guys ready to play a game? Okay, go for it. Okay. So this game is about the number of antibiotics you can name that start with the letter C. We could go on for a very long time. I'm sure you can imagine. But the <laughs> rules are <laughs> that you're playing against each other and you're only allowed to name one at a time. And there's a three second countdown before the next person's got to answer. Okay. And you keep going okay. until one of you gets stumped. And the last one standing is the winner. Who wants to go first? Callum, your name starts with a C, so I <laughs> dibs on going first. Okay. And does it have to be drug names or, or brand names? Drug names. Okay. No brand names on Micromail. Nope. Okay. Cormot's a club. Erythromycin. Ciprofloxacin. Clindamycin. Keftraxone. Kefalexin. Kefiroxime. Kefdinir. Kefapim. Kefachlora. Kefamixin. Kefamixin's not one. And if that means I win, right? Kefamixin's an antibiotic. He's a lab test I think you mean. Oh, yeah. And Kefamixin is the drug class. That would also be wrong. Maybe Kefalosporins. I think you just say Kefamorolub and drug. So, and any random collection of numbers. Yeah. Oh, Kefamixin should be one. Whoever's listening from drug companies, you should make Kefamixin. That's a great name. They've gone off the kefs lately. I think they, you know, they got to keftarlene and they were like, "Good enough, that's got MRC cover." We're leaving this drug class forever. Yeah. Maybe oh. kefidericol, actually. Oh God, Cal, we weren't even close to being finished. Cotramoxazole. <laughs> oh yeah. I have a yeah. I have a very very long list. I, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to keep up with the two of you. So, um, yeah, I had my list going, waiting for you. Colliston. <laughs> we didn't say Colliston. You didn't say Colliston. Colliston. Vindana's favorite as well. Keftazidime, mm. the new BLBLIs. There's a whole bunch. Oh, there's so many. It was just the time pressure. It was the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So you had to put the time pressure. Otherwise, you would have gone yeah. on Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens to us all, Callum. It does. Anyway, I think that was a great episode. Thank you both for joining me. And yeah, any last short words? No, oh, that's uh, that's fine. Uh, apologies to anybody who doesn't like to hear like an angry Scottish man just absolutely go off <laughs> on uh, on his pet subject for ten minutes at a time. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for having us, Finn. It's great. Thanks very you. much. Yeah, I think we should put sidle versus static to the sidelines. Yeah, totally. to the sidle lines. Or <laughs> well, maybe the static lines. <laughs> great. 
Thank you so much for joining me once again. And that's it from me, Vin, your micro messenger, and James and Callum. We'll see you again soon. You're, you're local, you're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.